All right, all right. Welcome to the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day in the United States, across the seas, and around the world. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, from frigates and littoral combat ships to mine warfare programs to the diverse ensemble of unmanned surface and underwater systems, the U.S. Navy's Office of Unmanned and Small Combatants oversees a wide range of programs. Our guest is the commander of that effort, Rear Admiral Casey Moten. But first a look at some of this week's naval news. The aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan arrived at Busan, Republic of Korea on September 23rd, marking a resumption of visits to South Korea that were interrupted by the pandemic. The cruiser Chancellorsville, destroyer Barry, like the Reagan based in Yokosuka, Japan, are with the Reagan, while the destroyer Benfold called it Chinhai. The visits were widely reported by regional media as political messaging to North Korea. The U.S. destroyer Higgins and Canadian frigate Vancouver together carried out a transit of the Taiwan Strait on September 20th, three weeks after two U.S. cruisers made the passage between Taiwan and the Chinese mainland. The U.S. Navy since mid-2018 has been maintaining a roughly once-a-month pace for the moves, intended to demonstrate the U.S. intent to maintain open sea lanes in international waters. The Canadian frigate Winnipeg with U.S. destroyer Dewey carried out a similar U.S.-Canadian straight transit in October 2021. The U.S. Coast Guard paid a rare visit to to India this past week when the cutter Midget called at Chennai for a three-day visit. The port call is the latest in a series of maritime engagements between the U.S. and India, which included the overhaul of a military sealift command ship in India this summer. The Honolulu-based national security cutter Midget is in the midst of a Western Pacific Indian Indian Ocean cruise. A small unmanned special operations craft was found washed up on shore in Omega Bay, Crimea, September 21, near the Russian naval base at Sevastopol. Images that appeared on social media showed a low black painted vessel about 18 feet long with several sensors. The vessel is thought to be a U.S. built and supplied explosives boat, perhaps one of the unmanned coastal defense vessels described by the Pentagon in April as being supplied to Ukraine. Russian reports said the vessel was towed to deeper water and exploded. Navy officials are putting the final touches on the upcoming maiden deployment of the aircraft carrier USS Gerald R. Ford. Although commissioned in July 2017, numerous technical issues and first-in-class testing requirements have dogged the ship over the past five years. While most of the Ford's major new technologies have been certified for operation, how well systems like the EMILS electromagnetic aircraft launch system, the advanced arresting gear, new electromagnetic weapons elevators, and the ship's combat and sensor suite perform are major questions the Navy hopes will be answered by the crews. The Ford and its carrier strike group, including aircraft from carrier Air Wing 8 and the German frigate Hessen, are expected to begin the deployment in early October. In new ship news, the littoral combat ship USS Cooperstown, LCS-23, was delivered September 20th from Lockheed Martin and Fincantieri Marinette Marine in Marinette, Wisconsin. The LCS is the second Freedom-class ship fitted with the combining gear correction that allows unrestricted operations. Cooperstown will be commissioned in New York City before heading to her home port of Mayport, Florida. In old ship news, decommissioning ceremonies for three U.S. Navy Ticonderoga-class cruisers 
were held at Norfolk, Virginia over the past week. USS Monterey CG-61 decommissioned September 16th after a 32 career. The Monterey returned in September 2021 from her final cruise, a nine-month independent deployment. On September 22nd, USS Anzio CG-68 officially ended her career at Norfolk. Although in commission for 30 years, Anzio had not deployed since early 2017. The ship had been inducted into the U.S. Navy's cruiser modernization program and underwent several costly overhauls, but completion of the modernization was canceled and the ship never returned to sea. And USS Way City, CG-66, decommissioned September 23rd. One more cruiser, Port Royal, CG-73, is expected to hold her decommissioning ceremony September 29th at Pearl Harbor. A fifth cruiser, Vela Gulf, CG-72, was decommissioned in Norfolk in early August. The decommissioned cruisers are being retained as spare parts assets for ships still in service. And finally, Leonard Glenn Francis, the person at the center of the infamous Fat Leonard bribery scandal that had plagued the U.S. Navy for more than a decade, was apprehended September 21st by Interpol authorities in Venezuela. Francis had escaped house arrest September 4th in San Diego and fled the United States. Interpol said Francis had fled first to Mexico, then reached Venezuela after a layover in Cuba and was headed for Russia. The Fat Leonard case now reaches an entirely new level as the United States does not recognize the Venezuelan government of President Nicolas Maduro and the countries do not have an extradition agreement. Francis now could become a piece in a larger exchange of prisoners between the two countries. Ironically, Francis had been set to appear in court September 22nd for final sentencing for his activities in the scandal. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. Well, as we said, our guest today is Rear Admiral Casey Moten, Program Executive Officer for Unmanned and Small Combatants at NAVC, the Naval Sea Systems Command. Welcome to the podcast, Admiral Moten. Uh, thank you, Chris. It's great to be here and, and, and really pleased to do this uh, with you and your listeners. Well, we are darn swell happy to have you here. You have as wide a portfolio as just about anyone at NAVC or NAV Air or elsewhere for that matter. Let's start with the big stuff, small combatants, defined in this case as frigates and littoral combat ships. You just had a major event with the Constellation Frigate Program. Tell us about it, please. Absolutely. Uh, a major milestone. Uh, just, a, just a few weeks ago, we started production for the Constellation of Class Frigates, uh, specifically with uh, FFG-62, the USS Constellation. Um, that is kind of the, a milestone event over all of the prep that we've been doing since contract award. Uh, you know, since that time, it's things like the, the shipbuilder uh, getting uh, their vendors on contract, and then obviously uh, preparing for production with their uh, capital expenditures. And then on the design side, the detail design. So um, both what we call functional, which is really kind of the systems design um, and the you know, 3D modeling and such. And, and just a huge effort by both the Navy and industry team over the last two years. It was important to both the Navy and the shipbuilder um, that we have a mature design before we started production. We, we both agree that that's uh, one of the keys to success. And we were able to achieve that milestone with a successful production readiness review in July. Uh, and then we're able to proceed into production. So uh, the shipyard is is moving out now and uh, steel is being cut up at Marinette. So we're pretty excited about that. Let's talk a little bit about 
the mature design concept. Uh, when this program was being competed, one of the um, key attributes or re requirements for anybody competing for this for the frigate program was that it had to be a mature program already in production. People understood that, whether you said it or not, a lot of people took that as you were going to take a, what obviously would be a foreign program, because there are no, no American frigates under construction, and adapt that design to American needs. I don't think anybody expected it to be, be identical, but the amount of design work has taken some people a little, little bit by surprise. Maybe they just don't understand it. So um, can you talk a bit about, you You took the Italian frame design as your parent design, but that's not the ship that you're building. Um, even if you just took off the superstructure, which is different, obviously different, uh, the hull is pretty different. How do you characterize your design efforts in adapting the Italian frigate into a U.S. Navy warship? Is yeah, that absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely aware of the fact that, you know, I think there's there's a lot of folks out there with a vision that, uh, you know, this was just take the take the Italian design and sort of change the label plates from Italian to English and, and off we go. Um, you know, we did we did uh, a variety of things here to reduce risk. So the first, um, you know, one of the most important things that we wanted to do was to use a, a U.S. government uh, furnished combat system and C4I system. So a departure from the strategies that we used with LCS and DDG 1000 originally. Um, so we'll have, you know, an, an Aegis derived combat system and program of record C4I systems. And so um, that was important to us. It reduces a lot of risk and it also increases commonality in both operations and support for the Navy. Um, so doing that, you know, one of the first things that you'll see is that obviously the top side of the ship um, has to look significantly different. So, and that's just because of the radars and uh, the antennas and, and all of those things that we do. So, you know, obviously a big change there, but for an important reason. Um, you know, the other thing that we that we absolutely did do was we took the the basis of the of the Italian the friend design, um, but we we absolutely did increase. Um, the levels of, uh, I would say, things like reliability and survivability, uh, more to U.S. Navy traditional combat standards. So, uh, you know, that was important to us that we that we have a multi-mission frigate with with combat survivability and combat reliability. And so, we did do some things to increase in all of those areas. And you know, that that drove. Uh, changes in the rest of the ship, right? I think it's it's well known at, at this point that we lengthened the ship um, and that we made uh, some other changes internal to the ship, right? Um, but, you know, the things that I would say, it's still, first of all, we are using non-developmental systems, right? So regardless of all that, the, the systems themselves, you know, there's there's nothing really that's new or an R&D project at this point. Um, it's not to say it's not going to be hard. I mean, any new ship is is hard. Uh, integration of systems for the first time is hard. Um, but the other thing is that we absolutely did use a lot of aspects of the Italian parent. You know, a typical ship design, we would start from a clean sheet of a clean sheet of paper, um, a new ship design. Um, and in this case, we didn't have to do that, right? So uh, all of you know, sort of behind the scenes. There was a lot of our ability to leverage things that were already done for the Italian design. You know, the arrangements in a lot of ways are similar 
um, just some of the details that kind of the naval architects and the engineers have to use were able to, to leverage information that was developed for the Italian. So there are many similarities that the propulsion system is, is an architecture uh, that is uh, very close to what's fielded on the Italian ships with the exception that you know, we have shifted to domestic equipment, right? So, um, but it, it's still, so, but it's still not you know, starting, from, starting from scratch. So it really was trying to be sort of the best of all of the worlds leverage the parent design, but also go with our common systems, our non-development, non-developmental systems, but also meet um, our requirements for uh, things like reliability and survivability. A number of the competitors that you were considering for the frigate designs are, are really focused anti-submarine warfare ships. Uh, right now, that's not a characteristic of the ships in service in the U.S. Navy, which are more general purpose. I've uh, been lucky enough to been on, I did an embark on the Italian Frem Alpino, um, when she was here two nights, and uh, and I've been on board a couple of French Frem frigates. And in both cases, both Naval Group and uh, Fincantieri talk a lot about the careful attention paid in the hull designs and, and underwater features to minimize acoustic signature. Um, are you preserving that those, those characteristics? Have you, is that something that because of, I mean, of whatever mods you're doing might not be quite as effective? How would you, how would you characterize that? That was, that really was a big feature that was at least pointed out to me from both. Yeah, of them. sure. Absolutely. So from, in terms of, um, you know, where we set the requirements, you know, obviously ASW is going to be a huge uh, part of the mission for the Constellation class frigate. Uh, the ship is going to have a variable depth sonar. Uh, which is, you know, Chris is not something that we fielded in quite some time that'll bring excellent capability for us um, from in terms of obviously not getting too specific, but, you know, we absolutely have uh, signature standards on the ship um, that are aligned with its need to conduct an ASW mission. Um, and so there was a lot of aspects that we kept from the Italian ship. Um, that uh, already aid in that. Uh, I mean, probably a principal example is that the ship has a fixed pitch propeller, um, you know, and an electric drive system, which brings a lot of inherent advantages in acoustics. Um, there's other areas in the design, again, not to be specific, where things that are designed for um, ASW capability and the right level of signatures for the ship to support that mission are all still inherent in the design. So right now you've got, I think you have three ships under contract. You're with options for seven more for a total of 10 with Fincantieri Marinette Marine. Um, the first ship is uh, by contract supposed to be delivered in 2026 uh, you, with, with one per year after that. At this point, is that still a realistic pace or, or is the US Navy gonna get a frigate in 26, another one in 27, another one in 28? It is, that's still the shipbuilder's plan. Um, and it's still the schedule that we're executing to, um, you know, it's, it's uh, obviously just with only a few weeks of production under our belt. Uh, I'm talking now more about the plan than I am talking about actual performance. Uh, you know, give us, give us six months or so and, and we'll, we'll see how we're tracking along there. But it's absolutely the plan. Um, the, the shipbuilder had to bring a detailed plan to the production readiness review. Um, uh, you know, at quite detailed level. So we were able to, to look at what their plans were for uh, the completion of the 3D modeling, uh, 
to, you know, just how they had their production planning set up uh, throughout the shipyard, their plans for uh, the staffing and for bringing on uh, the right levels of shipbuilder labor to the, to the shipyard. And, you know, we assessed that they had a good plan and that they are often executing. So um, confident with that, but, um, you know, as a shipbuilder, I'm always, uh, I always try to be a realist. And so uh, in a few in a few months, we will uh, have a better idea on how performance is going, but that is certainly the plan and the expectation. Okay. Fair enough. Let's switch, uh, switch over to the littoral combat ship everybody's favorite whipping boy. Um, while the Navy is a lot of, a lot of congressional testimony been fairly denigrating the class and a lot of its capabilities, they're still in production, both, both uh, types, the independence class from uh, Austria, USA, the freedom class from um, Pencantieri and, and Lockheed Martin uh, are the, the, the final ships are still in production and have yet to be delivered even as some have already been decommissioned. But this has been a really busy year, the last couple of years, really, for the Littoral Combat Ship Program. It seems to have hit an operational level that has never that never hit before. Uh, you've had, you had, had three LCS-2s out in the Western Pacific. One's home now. Um, the the uh, Freedom Class uh, Fourth Fleet around the Caribbean and the Latin America but you have also got one that is now deployed, but it's been out to uh, the Sioux City, been out to Fifth Fleet in the Persian Gulf. Now it's in Europe. I mean, what's what is happening on the on the flip side? In other words, not talking about the ships the Navy is requesting to decommission, which we all know is controversial in Congress. But what about the ships that are coming into service now? How are they different? Are they are they, are these really effective units? Um, what's the outlook for those ships? Yeah, sure. So I will, you know, I will just start by foot stomping a little bit of what you said about the, um, you know, the level of operation with the ships right now. And, um, you know, for your listeners that may not have seen it, Admiral, Admiral Kishner actually did quite a kind of in-depth uh, interview. And I think a few weeks ago, um, the swill boss talked a lot about uh, kind of where the ships were and just a really good piece that I would recommend uh, but, you know, we're, we're actually very proud, obviously, that the independence variants are for deployed with the Naval Strike Missile um, and performing um, important real world missions for Seventh Fleet. Um, the Freedom variant had done a lot of great work for Fourth Fleet. And, um, you know, based on that work, we were able to deploy Sioux City as the first of the ships to go to Fifth and Sixth Fleet. And Sioux City's just been doing an excellent job over there, right? And, and the ships have been performing quite well. And I think uh, you know, always, always things to work on, um, you know, things like I think even Admiral Kitchener mentioned and still improving our expeditionary maintenance capabilities. But, um, you know, overall, uh, the ship's been doing quite well. And so we're very pleased. And, and obviously, our PEO, uh, where we built the ships, is, is pleased about that. Now, to, to sort of pivot to the, you know, what's coming question. So, you know, really two big things. The first is, I would say the improving reliability of the class. So we stood up, uh, you know, uh, I guess probably a, almost a couple of years ago at this point, a strike team uh, that's a team between PUSC and NAVC 21. And the strike team is focused on specifically on improving reliability of the ships and also on improving the sustainability, giving Navy more organic capability. And it's, it's tucked up under as a part of Task Force LCS uh, with Admiral Kitchener leading that. So 
the strike team has you know done a lot of good work uh, that we have definitely seen improvements in the reliability overall of the ships that have deployed. And so I'm pleased with that. Um, and this is a lot of very specific work on improving reliability. Um, you know, there is still more work to go. Uh, we have specific systems that are still a bit of a challenge and that we are trying to uh, continue to improve. And again, Admiral Kitchener mentioned, for example, the crane on the Independence variant ship, uh, specifically when he spoke a few weeks ago. So um, in the on the construction side, we have been trying to roll as many of those reliability fixes into the construction pipeline as possible. So the ships that are coming off the production line now um, have, uh, for the most part, all of the reliability fixes that we have been developing for the class. So, you know, that's the first thing that I would say that's very important. Um, you know, obviously on the Freedom variant as well, the Freedom variant ships now are not being delivered until they have the fix for the combining gear uh, bearing issue that I think most people are familiar with at that point. So the ships that are delivering have those fixes and, uh, you know, that gives us a really great head start for those ships being uh, readiness for the fleet. And as more reliability fixers are, are developed, those ships will get it. But the ships coming off the production line are, are really have that capability. And, and in fact, um, it's just, you know, fortuitous. I'm actually happy to mention that yesterday the Navy took delivery of the future USS Cooperstown, which is LCS 23 um, from Marinette. And so Cooperstown is delivering with both the combining gear fix already installed and tested uh, and the latest reliability fixes for freedom variant. All right. Well, um, in our, in our time left, I really want to touch on some of the unmanned issues. Um, you've got, th this is also part of your purview. Um, uh, recently the, uh, these, these came in the news when the, uh, Iranian ships in both the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, tried to and then successfully seized um, some sail drone, uh, small unmanned service vessels operated by the U.S. Navy. In one case, the uh, Iranian ship took them on board, took two of them on board, and uh, took off some sensors and then put them back in the water and sailed away. Um, one, of the, one of the aspects that worries people about unmanned vessels operating independently or by themselves or just out there is security. Um, can you talk a little bit about what what was what, what from a programmatic view? What's the reaction to this sort of thing? The sail drones, to be fair, those are those are privately owned. It's a contractor. Um, those weren't those weren't U.S. Navy developed uh, USVs, but the but those characteristics apply to just about any unmanned service vessel. Um, how do you see it? What's your what's your response to people who wondering whether even this is even a viable concept? Um, yeah, so two things. So, uh, two things. First, uh, as we are continuing with our development, uh, supporting uh, principally uh, the large USV and MUSV programs at this point, you know, one of the one of the most important things that we are doing is developing the enabling capabilities, right? And that's that's a term that we use for uh, the various aspects of uh, research and development that are needed to mature the key components of uh, autonomous unmanned service vessels. And that, that includes things like reliable machinery equipment. It includes uh, you know, networks and radios that support autonomy and connectedness with the naval operational architecture. 
It includes uh, the future integrated combat system. It includes uh, sensing and autonomy to support uh, safe navigation. Um, and lastly, it includes vessel control, uh, you know, using our common control system. So all of those efforts are the focus of a lot of the work that we're doing in the PEO. Um, and we are, you know, that is focused, uh, quite frankly, other than things like very specific, like maybe the size of the engines, almost all of that will support uh, both LUSV uh, and MUSV. Um, as one of the other things that's included in there is things that would address uh, you know, some of the protective type issues. Like, so there's a robust look at anti-tamper in terms of our systems and, you know, protecting um, if systems or, or um, you know, or weapons were, were uh, you know, somehow came in the hands of an adversary, things like zeroization of data and other specific aspects that are done. The second piece is uh, uh, cyber protectiveness. So, you know, obviously this, this really goes for not just the unmanned fleet, but the entire fleet. We're certainly doing all of the rigorous levels of cyber look for unmanned. And then there are a variety of uh, physical um, protective measures for uh, the larger USVs that we're looking at in development, although I won't get too specific on that, right? So we are, we are definitely looking at, um, you know, that, and part of how we're going to deal with that is also the operational economics, right? So LUSV adjunct magazine, initially, uh, you know, vessels with under the supportive of umbrella of the fleet is how we're gonna proceed the smaller type vessels that are being tested by Task Force 59, you know, clearly there is a there is ultimately a decision that's not really a PEO decision, but how is the fleet going to operate, right? So part of what excites me about what Task Force 59 is doing is is beyond unmanned in the sense that we're doing large and medium, et cetera. They, you know, they are really helping define the concepts for what you know the CNO's hybrid fleet of manned unmanned looks like. I think at the end of the day, if a vessel is unmanned and not under a close protective umbrella, that there is higher risk of attrition. But that is weighed against uh, the benefits of unmanned um, in terms of, uh, you know, enabling distributed maritime ops, enabling more spread out lethality and sensing. So I'm not trying to say that it's not a challenge. It's just, you know, uh, we have to weigh that against uh, all of the other work. Um, and then supported by the things that we're doing for security. Um, you know, clearly in the fifth fleet case, uh, certainly not to speak for them, but in words that have, I think already been said, you know, they had pre-planned responses. They were able to execute those pre-planned responses. Uh, they had already anticipated that. And I think that even the experience that they've had will be valuable as the Navy works on the concepts and the requirements for hybrid fleet in the future. So those are very the 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 USVs out in fifth fleet. Those are those are pretty small units. You have a number of um, medium class USVs uh, in operation right now. The Sea Hunter, the, the the two Sea Hunters. You have these four Ghost Fleet um, Overlord boats. We just saw one, the Mariner, at Annapolis a couple weeks ago as we took delivery of that. On the large USV um, front, you don't have one, but there is one. Um, you didn't request it, but uh, there was a congressional plus up a couple of years ago and the latest uh, expeditionary fast transport Apalachicola EPF-13 has been fitted with an autonomous system that's been developed by Austin USA and L3 Harris. And they've actually been out all summer doing a pretty extensive series of trials. The ship's about to deliver. It will deliver the military sealift command. 
they have no requirement for autonomy. Um, they're 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 going to use it as a regular EPF. Actually, out of Seventh Fleet is the plan. But the but the the ship does exist. My understanding is those autonomous systems are going to remain in place um, as you work through the FY24 um, budget request, which is what's happening right now. Um, is there an outlook for the Navy to use those systems? That's it's this is a over two thousand tons, much larger ship than anything else. Matter of fact, I think this is the largest unmanned autonomous ship, if not in the Western Hemisphere, possibly in the world. It's one of the largest, for sure. Um, it, what, what's your feeling of of that sense of that asset? Is that something you'd like to continue working on? Um, where, where yeah, so absolutely. So um, first, I'll just say probably in terms of the size, you know, certainly probably in the U.S., um, you know, I would remind folks that there's actually a lot of uh, good work going on out in the rest of the world in the commercial maritime sector. Um, you know, certainly the Norwegians are working on some, uh, not concepts, that, you know, ships that are in the water in the Japanese. So probably they would object to the uh, largest in the world uh, class, but um, but I take your point anyway. So. On, on EPF 13, you know, as you definitely mentioned, it was not a Navy request, but we, we took the funds and actually executed the best that we could um, and, and installed both the vessel autonomy system on EPF 13, as well as making a host of changes to the machinery plant um, to improve the autonomy and to improve the uh, unmanned maintenance of the machinery plant on the ship, even though EPF already has a lot of those features in its inherent uh, machinery system. Uh, the, ship, the ship ran a series of trials uh, this year and just recently wrapped those up and has completed, as you mentioned, the acceptance trial. Uh, the autonomy trials, you know, overall went, um, went quite well. I think at the end of the day, the ship was able to travel um, I believe uh, almost 1300 nautical miles in, in autonomy mode um, and as a very set of rigorous trials, and um, at the at the end, uh, the systems performed quite well, and we were pleased uh, with how they did, both in terms of the HMNE and the vessel autonomy. You know, including long distance transits from Mobile, uh, you know, down to Southern Florida and around even. So quite excited about that. Um, one of the things besides just testing the technology, which was important, it actually gave industry. Um, a lot of chance to uh, make improvements to their autonomy during the course of the testing and the trials. You know, we also, I think POUSC and PO ships work together uh, to use this as almost a model of how we might do this again in the future, where if we have another ship class that, that, that ships would build, for instance, PMS 406 almost functioned as what we call a PARM in the Navy participating program where they provided the specs and the system for the autonomy and that's how we executed. So it, it may not sound very uh, uh, exciting, but in a lot of ways, this allowed us to also exercise the process um, of how we're gonna build autonomous ships. Now that you know, your last point of the question, it, it's true that as the ship delivers, um, the autonomy system is gonna be left in place, but deactivated. And I think that there are still discussions going on between PO ships, the builder, uh, and between um, the Pentagon and the military seal of command on what the future capability uh, or plans are going to be for EPF-13. So uh, ultimately, I'm not going to comment too much specifically on that, but uh, you know, certainly the system will be uh, left in place, but deactivated. 
And uh, if we're able to uh, balance any potential ability for testing with the operational use of the ship, uh, you know, we would certainly be supportive of that. Okay, fair enough. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have because I always feel when I talk to you, we've just scratched the surface of way too many topics. Uh, our folks, our guest has been Rare Mulcasey Moten, Program Executive Officer for Unmanned Small Combatant and Small Combatants at NAVC. Thank you very much for being on the podcast, Admiral. All right. Thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you again for the invitation. And uh, it was great to do this. And I hope it was useful. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. Time for Squawk Box. Mr. Savello has some attaboys. Thanks, Chris. This week, I'd like to use my squawk to give a shout out and bravo Zulu to Rear Admiral retired Frank Thorpe and his team at the Navy Memorial for all the great work they are doing to make this unique museum and memorial more relevant than ever. Dedicated in 1987, the mission of the United States Navy Memorial is to honor, recognize, and celebrate the men and women of the sea services, past, present, and future, and to inform the public about their service. Last night was the annual Lone Sailor Awards Dinner, held for the first time in person since 2019. The Lone Sailor Award is given to sea service veterans who have excelled with distinction in their respective careers during or after their service. Along with the Lone Sailor Award, the Naval Heritage Award was given. This award is given to Americans who have excelled with distinction in their respective careers, distinguished themselves with their significant support of the nation's sea service, and whose lives and careers exemplify the core values of honor, courage, and commitment. This year's Lone Sailor Awards were Coast Guard veteran James R. Barker, an American shipping businessman who was the chairman of the Interlake Steamship Company and Seastrake, along with retired Navy Admiral Tom Fargo, a former commander of U.S. Pacific Command, the inspiration for the Bart Mancuso character in Hunt for Red October, and a successful post-Navy business and corporate board leader. Christine Fox was given the Naval Heritage Award. Fox served in a number of important academic, think tank, and government jobs that helped shape Navy and broader defense thinking for decades. She is also known to be the inspiration for the character Charlie in the first Top Gun movie. There are a lot of awards given to Americans who make a difference. The Lone Sailor Award is one of my favorites because they seem to get it right each and every year. Whether the awardee is well-known or flies under the public radar, each recipient is an inspiration to those serving and is a great ambassador for what it means to sacrifice in and out of uniform. Again, congrats to Rear Admiral Thorpe and his staff for a great event. And if you haven't been to the Navy Memorial in a while, be sure to get there, especially for their upcoming Navy birthday festivities. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. And folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vagamoradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. Hey.